sometimes we have experiences that are so overwhelming that it takes us a while to process them and understand their significance. It could be a traumatic experience or, or even experiences that are extremely exciting, filled with so many emotions. And I think that something like that was going on with Jesus' apostles when we find them today at the Sea of Galilee. Now they consider the last few weeks they had before this. They had the great high of coming with Jesus into Jerusalem where he's being greeted as the Messiah. Only a few days later to be with him in the upper room at the Last Supper and then some of them in the garden with him when he was in agony. Then his arrest, his torture, his condemnation, his crucifixion. Uh, talk about a whirlwind. And then that early that Sunday morning, the women say the tomb is empty and then he appears to them. Once that first Sunday and then the next Sunday. And so I think that, you know, they're trying to process all this. They, they don't really know what it all means. They don't really know what they're supposed to do next. So what do they do? They go fishing. Something they're familiar with, right? Something very comfortable. The way of life that many of them had before they even met Jesus. Now, when Jesus appears first and he's on the shore there in the boat, they don't recognize him. And maybe in this case, it was, it was, un, it was very early in the morning. They couldn't see well. Uh, they had been fishing all night and they had caught nothing. Right? Sometimes you wonder how good a fisherman they were, right? <laughs> so they're fishing all night and they caught nothing. Where Jesus, then Jesus tells them to cast the net over the right side of the boat. And sure enough, the net is so full of fish, right? They can barely haul it in. And this is deja vu for them, right? Because that happened before when they were fishing. It was called the miraculous catch of fish. And Jesus tells them to cast the net, right? Before they had caught nothing. And so, so John is a little quicker on the uptake than this. So when that, when that happens, they're playing the, he, says, he says to Peter, it is the Lord. So now Peter knows the Lord because John told him. And then Peter, though, is the one. He jumps into the water and he goes to Jesus. You know, he gets onto the shore. And Jesus is waiting for him there. And he has already cooked some fish and there's some bread. And there is an interesting detail that when the... So Peter gets ahead of them. The boat comes with the fish. But it's Peter who grabs the net full of fish and drags it to where Jesus is. And I think there's some significance that We see, in fact, throughout the story, the initiative of Peter. That among the twelve, he had a special role of leadership. And the idea is they, they gather this net full of fish and it said the net didn't tear. And I think that indicates that one of the roles that Peter had and that Peter's successors have, the popes, is to preserve the unity of the church. Right? The net is full, but it doesn't tear. Now, when Peter gets there and Jesus has a charcoal fire... Peter stood start, stood start, stood, should start making another connection in his head. What happened not long before involving Peter in a charcoal fire? That is where he denies Jesus three times. Right? So he's, remember, when Jesus is arrested, he's warming himself by the fire. And people say, aren't you one of his disciples? And what does he say? I don't even know him. Right? Now, this connection is brought clear later in their conversation. Now remember in that first encounter, after Jesus uh, led them to this miraculous catch of fish, 
you know, Peter falls to his knees before Jesus and he says, depart from me, for I am a sinful man. And indeed, that was true. And we see Peter's sinfulness and his weakness when he denies Jesus. And so when Jesus asks him, not once, not twice, but three times, do you love me? Why is Peter annoyed the third time? Not just because Jesus keeps asking. Right? Because then he remembers, it was three times that I denied you, Lord. And I don't think Jesus is doing this just to rub it in his face. I think actually it's a wonderful thing Jesus is doing. He's giving a chance, Peter a chance to make up for his threefold denial by a threefold profession of love. It's actually a beautiful thing. And so this whole encounter of, of Jesus with the apostles at the Sea of Galilee is meant as restoration and reorientation. Okay? So they, they're confused. They don't know what to do. They go back to their old way of life. What does he do? He comes in the same way and he gives them the same mission. Right? Be fishers of men. Follow me. I will make you fishers of men. Tend my sheep. Right? So Jesus is restoring them and he's reorienting them. And at that time, Peter, even though he confesses his love to Jesus, he's not quite there. You know, we can think about, we think about Simon as referring to his, you know, his pre-converted self and, and Peter as the man, the identity Jesus gives him, the man into whom he was going to grow by the grace of God. There's a line in the movie Jerry Maguire where Dorothy says about Jerry, she says, I love him. I love him for the man he wants to be, and I love him for the man he almost is. So by the Sea of Galilee, in this resurrection appearance, Simon is almost Peter. But by the time we get to our first reading in Acts, the transformation is complete. He is truly rock. So now the disciples, led by Peter, have been preaching Jesus Christ. Preaching his death and resurrection, how it was necessary for all people to believe in him in order to be saved. Jesus' enemies were still in power. Remember the Sanhedrin that had condemned him in a religious trial, that had condemned him of blasphemy, that turned him over to Pilate to be tortured and crucified. They're still in power, the same guys. And they arrest the apostles and they tell them, stop preaching about Jesus. And Peter says, we must obey God rather than men. And then he basically preaches to the Sanhedrin. He says, this Jesus whom you killed, you know, he died for your sins and you have to believe in him too. So he's no longer afraid, but he is courageous. Right? Um, he's, he's obedient to God. Right? Interestingly, and I don't remember if it was in this incident or another, but uh, at one point, the Sanhedrin has him flogged, has him whipped. Right? Uh, and it says that when they're leaving, the apostles uh, rejoice that they had been found worthy to suffer dishonor for the sake of the name. Sometimes people ask me, you know, how will I know when I've become a really mature Christian, just a fully developed, mature Christian? And I say that one of the markers is this, when you can rejoice in suffering. You see it in the lives of all the saints. Not that they always like it, not that they always rejoice immediately in suffering, but in reflecting on it, they rejoice. And I'm, I'm not quite there yet all the time. Sometimes I have this grace, 
And I'm able to do that. Now, during Lent, adults prepare uh, to be initiated into the church through baptism, confirmation, and Holy Eucharist. And uh, at Easter Vigil, they receive those sacraments of initiation. But they're not done at that point. The church views the time after Easter, the time of the Easter season, as a time to process and unpack what happened to them. And the church calls that mystagogy. And in fact, all of us, even if when we were baptized, as, even if though we were baptized as infants, are sort of invited to go through that process again, right? To, to unpack, um, to process what it meant for us that we were baptized into Christ, that we were given this new life, that we were given a new identity, that we were given a mission. You know, this doesn't happen, the, everything doesn't completely happen in the moment of our initiation. It takes time for the transformation to show forth more fully in our attitudes and in our actions. The old self, the weak self, let's call him Simon, is still there, but by God's grace, it decreases, and our new identity in Christ, let's call him Peter, grows stronger. I feel like the church has had overwhelming experiences that have disoriented her over the last many decades. And there's really a root of this that goes back further. Right? The, the, the modern and most postmodern periods are times where things that have been stable for many centuries got unsettled. You know, uh, Christ was considered the sort of center of Western civilization. God was the center. And over, over many years, God got pushed over and man was put at the center. And part of that has to do, you know, with the, the technological revolution, the scientific revolution. Man is saying, wow, look at all that we can do. Maybe, maybe we're God, you know. And you've seen it in so many, in so many ways. And uh, even uh, recently there was information published about the number of infant baptisms in the United States, which, is, which has declined dramatically over the last several years, right? So even the church was trying to respond to this, the Second Vatican Council, where bishops around the world gathered in Rome in the early 60s. And they had some beautiful, beautiful they produced some beautiful documents to try to situate the church in this new situation in the culture. But it didn't quite reorient the church as a whole. There's still this, this disorientation. We're still trying to process it all. And some people are hopeful that in this synod process that is happening now, this process of listening to people, Catholics around the world, it will be helpful for us to reorient us. Uh, I know in our, in our parish, for example, we had the synod sessions in our diocese. It, it really was simple. It was three questions that people were asked. What are your disappointments regarding the church? What are your joys? And what are your hopes? And we have all, gathered all that information. We forwarded it to the diocese. Someone is working on a summary of that now for all of you, of what happened in our parish. I've read, read through, spent a few hours reading through the comments. At the same time, the diocese asked teens, teenagers, to go through a similar process. And so our youth minister um, did this with our 13 core team members. These are teenagers that are leaders. And they did this process. Uh, I wasn't involved at all. And... Uh, just earlier this week, the results were shared with me and I read through them. 
So besides answering those three questions, the teens of their own initiative um, chose to write a letter to Pope Francis. And I want to read you the letter because it's very short. Dear Pope Francis, <clears throat> the church has helped us to navigate many tough times, but we hope that it does not lose sight of its original and eternal goal. Faithful Catholics want a faithful church. We look to our leaders to call out false Catholics who do not live out the love and teaching of Christ. We want to encourage you to preach the truth even when the truth is unpopular. We are called to follow God, not the world. We young people want tradition, to be a part of something bigger than ourselves that won't change with the times. We pray that the Holy Spirit guides you in your leadership of the church. Now, if you know me well at all, you know that I was very happy to read this. <laughs> and I was actually quite surprised <laughs> um, that, yes, the church does have to, uh, have to adapt in certain ways, maybe in, in certain uh, style, a manner of speaking to the changes in the world. But fundamentally, we have a mission that was given to us by Jesus that remains unchanged over the millennia. And these teens understood that very well. In fact, they're asking the Holy Father um, for that. Um, now, uh, I didn't pick these teens to be on the core team, by the way. I wasn't at, involved at all in their synod process. So again, I was very happy to see these results. As people have asked me, what, I shared it with a few people, why do you, why do you think, because most people don't expect teens to, to, for that to be their desire for the church. I do think a lot of it has to do with a couple years ago, we started a process for those teens that were interested in more intense discipleship formation. We formed them in what I call the eight habits of a missionary disciple. And I think what happened is just a fruit of that, that they have real lives of prayer. They read the Bible. Right? They study the teaching of the church. They practice asceticism. So I think that, that helps to explain that. But again, it gave me great hope that when the church is overwhelmed and experiencing disorientation, that the Lord comes to us and he restores us and he reorients us. I hope that all of us are reflecting more deeply on our identity and mission and that we are able to say to Jesus, not just with our lips, but with our actions, with our entire manner of life, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you.